Welcome to OEM Industry Update, a weekly podcast examining the latest news and technology trends impacting product development teams in the heavy-duty on- and off-highway equipment industries. I'm Sarah Jensen, editor of OEM Off-Highway, and in this week's episode, I'll be speaking with Sam Cockerell, CEO of Libertine FPE, about the company's development of smart engine control technology. Let's take a listen now. You want to maybe just start um, giving a little bit of an overview of the company and kind of what you guys are working on and kind of your sure. goals. Okay. Uh, well, a bit of background first then. So I, I'm a mechanical engineer. I started out my career making race engines for uh, the IndyCar circuit in North America at Cosworth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these um, were methanol fuel race engines. And, uh, and there's an interesting connection then back to what we're doing at the moment. Uh, after a, a fairly circuitous career through you know, consulting and uh, industrial product development, I ended up working in the UK's biofuel uh, industry for a company called Ensis, which makes uh, about a third of a million tons of bioethanol per year. Uh, one of the things that struck me whilst working at Ensis, we were forming the business uh, and, and just setting up operations, is today ethanol is is in widespread use. I mean, it's the most commonly used uh, biofuel in the world, um, but its use only really took off when uh, engines were developed that could use both petrol and ethanol and mixes of the two. So you go to North America, uh, ethanol blends up to E85 are in widespread Mm -hmm. use. You go into South America, um, pure ethanol, hydrous ethanol is in use, but you can splash blend that in your tank with gasoline and across Europe, you know, E85 is a common blend and so on. So so, um, uh, today ethanol is used sort of interchangeably in spark ignition engines. Um, But what all of those engines have in common is a crankshaft. Uh, and that means that they all have to have the same, uh, essentially the, the same combustion design, the same compression ratio, uh, because that's what a crankshaft does. You know, it's sort of as it goes right. In fact, there's one on my shelf over there. I won't, I won't try and, I won't try and fetch it down. Uh, <laughs> another aside, one of the things that I made at Cosworth was the crankshaft for the uh, 1996 IndyCar engine. So uh, oh, yeah, nice. we've just got rid of that. <laughs> um, so, but all a crankshaft does is it, it, it you know, it takes a piston and it, it moves it from there to there. And back again, very mm. precisely, very repeatably, very repeatably, with with never any difference. And that's great if you want to do the same thing every time. But if you're going to see a different fuel because you've you've put something different in the tank from time to time, uh, the compression ratio is wrong. Same as you know, if you if you had your engine control unit that could only ever deliver one spark advance and one igni- one one fuel setting, I mean, it would be wrong. It'd be wrong all the time. The mm. reason modern engines are reliable and clean and efficient is that they don't have to deliver the same spark every time, the same fuel injection every time. It's a software choice. And the great thing about software is changing your mind is for free. I mean, every time, every combustion event, sensors report what's happening. Is the engine knocking? Is the fueling right? How lean is the exhaust? How how much oxygen is there? And they're constantly listening for this chatter, this flood of information and improving the decision about the next combustion event. And if you're in a fuel ignition, ignition and the uh, fuel injection and ignition, they're just dancing around searching for the optimum the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. The crankshaft isn't. The crankshaft is just doing its stupid thumpy thing every time, same just with complete disregard for what it should be doing, which is probably mm-hmm. adjusting its compression ratio a bit every time because it's not right, but it can't because it's a mechanical thing, okay? And we're fixing that. So we're okay. replacing the crankshaft 
with a software controlled machine that can dance around just like the fuel injectors and the uh, and the ignition can so that in future every single combustion event is now a science experiment run by ai and it'll be perfect uh, and if we get to that future well that's that's fantastic because engine well firstly engines will be even cleaner and more efficient than they are at the moment but here's the clincher when it comes to making engines for a fossil free future i mean that's going to mean using pure ethanol we cannot afford to mix petrol in with ethanol in order to make it burn when it's cold we can't have blends of fossil this and renewable that a fossil free future is a fossil free future it's just uh, you know renewable fuels mm. and if you have to make synthetic fuels that look exactly like petrol and diesel i mean that's really expensive and it's energy inefficient and so on it's not the right answer making simple molecules like ethanol and methanol it's easy to do it's cost effective it's energy efficient it's low greenhouse gas impact the only downside is this the the, the kind of the nuancing of compression ratio becomes much more significant. You really want to be able to do high compression ratios when you're cold, lower it a bit when you're warm. You want to be able to dance around for advanced combustion strategies like uh, you know low temperature combustion, uh, mixing, compression ignition and spark ignition. All of these things combustion engineers want to do and they can't do today because the thing that would do that for them is a thumpy piece of metal that does the same thing cycle after cycle. So that's the problem we're solving. We're, we're putting the freedom to choose your compression ratio every cycle into the hands of combustion engineers so they can make better engines for renewable fuels. Mm -hmm. Okay. Are you able to go into the technology then a little bit more and kind of how it yeah, works? Yeah. Uh, well, in, so in fact, free piston engines, as you call them, they, they've been around for a while and um, mm -hmm. almost since people worked out the crankshafts were a pretty good way of doing compression ratio repeatably. People have also been trying to work out, well, okay, how else could we do this? You know, sort of slider mechanisms and chains and all sorts of other ways, uh, you know, um, sort of uh, wobble plates and so on for moving the piston. Um, and free pistons, so having no crankshaft and then having pistons that move against a, a hydraulic force or a gas force, I mean, they've been done, right? So we've, we've had uh, free piston engines or free piston gas generators in power stations in, in France and, the, and, uh, and in, in some marine um, uh, powertrains. So, so they've been done and uh, they, there has been you know, some uh, kind of technology maturity that's gone on with that. The trouble is when you try and generate electrical power, um, it's a bit more complex because making an efficient linear electrical machine is quite a tricky thing to do. And it has been a tricky thing to do up until recently because advances in power electronics and uh, magnetic materials and so on, suddenly this presents a new palette that engineers can use as they're, as they're kind of, you know, uh, working on these new, uh, these new uh, engines. Um, the, the other challenge is when it comes to running combustion efficiently and effectively cycle after cycle, uh, not only does the electrical machine have to control to the same compression ratio um, or to, to you know, desired compression ratio, before, before you can do that, you've got to be able to correct for any combustion variations and, and to anchor as if, you were, as if you had a crankshaft, but a software controlled crankshaft. Mm -hmm. And that control performance has been really elusive. And historically, what's tended to happen is you have a, you know, a combustion engine and a combustion event has been not quite on target. It's maybe been a bit more forceful or there's been a bit of a misfire. And that has resulted in at the next cycle, the compression ratio being a bit further from what it was supposed to be because the electrical machine hasn't compensated. Uh, and if, that, if that's gone in the wrong direction, then you, know, you have a bad combustion event that gets to a really bad combustion event that gets to a complete misfire. And within a few cycles, the, the engine is sort of all over the place and just dies. And historically, that's been the pattern of most free piston engine development programs. People have sort of gone into that thinking, wouldn't it be fantastic if, setting about making the free piston engine and then realizing in the lab that 
they actually don't have the control they wanted. And so they have something which theoretically gives them a really good platform, really, you know, really good variable compression ratio platform. But in practice, the control stability just doesn't allow them to do what they want to do. So what we're, as a company, what we're doing is we're making the electrical machines and the control hardware and the control software so that an engine developer can just take that as a given. I mean, put in a number, that's the compression ratio you get. Uh, and by making by making that platform, by making that now just you know part of the technology environment that a combustion developer can use, it shortcuts the development of these new engine products by you know years, possibly decades. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, is it any type of engine then that it could be in, um, integrated into, or um, is there specific types? Is, is it- ones that would normally be run on diesel or so uh, the, that... the distinction yeah people understand there's a uh, you know the concept of misfueling an engine which is is more a thing in uh, in, in kind of you know passenger cars because people are a bit dopey sometimes yeah. than it is in uh, in heavy duty vehicles yeah, my, my family firm we have a transport fleet i don't think any of our drivers have ever misfueled a vehicle <laughs> but the idea of misfueling is um, it only exists because you have a crankshaft i mean if you put if you put um you know diesel into a petrol engine vehicle uh, if if you could if you could sort of magic the crankshaft to something that gave a larger compression ratio, it wouldn't matter. It'd be like, oh, it's it's a diesel engine now, right? Mm-hmm. So the the concept of misfueling and whether an engine is a petrol engine or a diesel engine or something else, mm-hmm. that's just a crankshaft. I mean, you know, that, that's a slight simplification, but fuel specificity in an engine is largely because of the crankshaft. So if you replace the crankshaft with uh, linear electrical machines, it's a fuel flexible engine. Right. I mean, there there are certain subtleties around material compatibility and the fuel Mm. lines and the injector choice and so on. But to a large extent, you know, in in the engine we put down, sent down to Marla powertrain, we ran it off um, hydrous ethanol. We could have put methanol in there. We could put petrol in there. We could have mixed all three things into a bucket and we'd have found a compression ratio for that. Right. And so Mm. having control over the compression ratio makes for fuel flexibility. And that is one of the great promises of a free piston engine. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And so then um, now is this geared towards engines that would be used in um, it's heavier duty applications, right? Is it on road like trucks? Is it off highway equipment? Is it both? Or I guess what kinds of applications could it? I think, I mean, ultimately that's up to our customers. Most of okay. the most of the traction that we're getting, most of the interest we're getting is coming from heavy duty and off highway applications as well as distributed power generation applications. Uh, and in part, I think that's because in passenger automotive applications, uh, there's a lot more uncertainty about um, the uptake of battery electric vehicles and the policy uh, support or bans against internal combustion vehicles and so on. So I think for a lot of the passenger automotive OEMs, uh, many of them are sort of sitting on the fence waiting to see how that policy risk resolves. In a lot of cases, they've got a legacy portfolio of engines that they can use for the time being in hybridization. Mm-hmm. So there's not really the same momentum behind investing in better engines for renewable fuels. Uh, but when it comes to heavy duty and off highway, uh, the, you know, we know for sure that battery electrification alone is not going to be a sufficient solution for a while yet. And that's in part because of the impact on payload, if you're carrying all the extra battery mass. Right. It's in part because of the impact on the vehicle operator economics, because it's a more expensive vehicle if you're carrying 400 miles of range 
in batteries, right? And there's some mm -hmm. hills in the way. That's a lot right. of batteries. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it impacts operator economics. If you are um, here, I'm talking about on on highway. Uh, if if it impacts, you know, the utilization hours. You know, if if you would in the UK, an efficient transport operation has to have a, a, you know 80 hours or more utilization per week. And if you're cutting into that with uh, charge time, and you're down to 50 or 60 hours of utilization, you cannot make money today. So I mean, transport is probably going to get more expensive. Um, that's not certainly true, but it's likely to get more expensive as we move towards net zero, just because of the technology investments required. But a an onboard power generation solution for heavy duty vehicles uh, in the UK is recognised as being a part of the solution. The uh, in the UK we have our uh, APC roadmaps um, recently published, uh, which show the expected continuing role for internal combustions, uh, internal combustion engines, and renewable fuels because of those limitations and the slow pace of rollout of battery electric solutions for trucks. And if you look at the sales figures at the moment, they tell a story. I mean, um, you know, you can see the very rapid uptake of battery electric and hybridization in uh, passenger vehicles and light duty vehicles. Uh, the uptake in heavy duty vehicles is, um, I mean, I haven't checked today's numbers, but I'm guessing it's same as yesterday, which was 0%. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Uh, when it comes to off-highway applications, it gets even more interesting because, right. I mean, in our family firm, we also have a farming operation and I walked around at the beginning of January and there's, I think I mentioned in my email, there's, there's you know, um, a bunch of drainage operation. That's all big thumpy diesel engines. There's, uh, you know, we've got an excavator there. Uh, we've got uh, a couple of JCB tractor units. We've got all the uh, cultivations going on. Um, I cannot imagine a time uh, for the foreseeable future where those are all going to be battery electric vehicles not least because on site here we do not have a three-phase power connection so we'll be charging them all through, through a 13 amp plug which is going to take a while right. um so so, so uh so I mean, things change, right? And we, so we mm -hmm. might find that um, you know, we have a big wind wind turbine here and a big battery bank here, and the battery electrification might work. But but you know, uh, renewable fuels, internal combustion in renewable fuels, that works today. So mm -hmm. I think that is going to be a big part of the future. And again, if we look at the UK's APC technology roadmaps, they explicitly acknowledge heavy duty on highway and off highway heavy duty. Uh, these are really hard to electrify applications it's going to take renewable fuels and internal combustion alongside other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, hydrogen could also play a role, uh, but we see companies like Scania dialing back from that because many of the challenges that battery electrification has in terms of the fuel distribution, energy distribution infrastructure, uh, it's the same problem with hydrogen. So I mean, we, we, we also don't have a hydrogen filling station on, on site in our family firm, nor do we know we're likely to in the, in the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. So um, it's probably going to take a mix of technologies to decarbonize heavy duty and off-highway applications. And our technology will play a really important role, we think, in uh, helping make better use of renewable fuels in those heavy duty applications until we get to the stage where you know electric power and renewable grid power is everywhere and batteries are, are sort of almost free and, and super low mass and so on mm -hmm. uh, technology's changed so that 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 time might, might come in a few decades but we've got to decarbonize now i mean time is of the right. essence right mm -hmm. okay um uh, oh, you... sorry just, oh, just no, one, one, one final point i was going to mention yeah. um, we talk about renewable fuels and people sometimes uh anxious about where you know what do we mean by renewable fuels where do they come from are we are we mm -hmm. going to be you know chopping down rainforests to make biodiesel or are we going to be you know uh, burning uh you know burning fuel to uh, burning food to make fuel um I, I think one of the one of the nice things about a future that has a combination of battery technology using power from the grid and onboard power generation is we don't need as much in the way of fuel I and mean, the fuel use is really going to be concentrated 
just for those operations, those journeys, those miles where you really cannot get access to the grid. So immediately there's 80% of, of energy use in transport that disappears. So the job that's left for renewable fuels is much is much smaller one. Uh, not only do we have um, if you know the good biofuels that don't compete with food and that don't uh, drive land use change, and that includes, by the way, first generation bioethanol, because in the UK we make first generation bioethanol it co-produces high protein animal feed. So immediately that's solving for us a, a renewable fuel challenge and it's helping to uh, substitute the, uh, the the high protein animal feed that would otherwise come from, you know, South American deforestation and so on. Mm -hmm. so, so we've got bioresources, but we also have um, uh, the, the, uh, the kind of synthetic fuel possibilities uh, in a least cost renewable grid. There's gonna be a massive excess of wind and solar because the capacity the capacity cost is really cheap so it's much cheaper to build more than you need and have a smaller kind of storage capacity on the grid than it is to build exactly the right amount and then have a huge amount of storage for the swings because storage is really expensive so mm -hmm. if you have over capacity on the grid you've got all this excess but intermittent energy you don't know what to do with we can use that and just store it as methanol you know store it there's some stored as methanol, turn it into uh, synthetic ammonia for fertilizer. There's loads of uses that don't mind if it's intermittent and you've only got it to 75% of the time. And synthetic fuels is one of the things that comes uh, not quite for free, but it's one of the dividends that you get when you overinvest in in, uh, in renewables build out. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing, the other channel or path for uh, for renewable biomethanol in particular comes from agricultural wastes and residues. So in, in uh, you know, in uh, uh, agricultural uh, products used in bioethanol production in Brazil. There's a massive excess of bagasse, same in North America of corn stover. Uh, in forestry, uh, forest management produces a huge amount of forest thinnings. Now, if you can take all of that and gasify it and turn it into methanol, immediately you're powering agriculture using the wastes and residues from agriculture without having to go off and you know, dig up fossil fuels to make it happen. So there's there's a nice sort of circularity to that, just making better use of the uh, bioresources that we have around us. It's, you know, especially in those distributed industries uh, and the remote industries in you know, construction, agriculture, uh, mining, and and uh, and, and so on, uh, forestry that you know that, that really uh, don't lend themselves to uh, long wires and battery electrification. Right. Okay. And so, are you able to talk a little bit about the testing that you guys did with Male Powertrain and kind of what that helped um, demonstrate with your guys's technology and maybe kind of where you're going next? Yeah, so, so as I mentioned, we, we make a, um, a, a platform and the platform involves uh, punchy electrical machines, you know, really high force electrical machines uh, that can be controlled in a, in a very uh, kind of responsive manner. We build the, uh, the software and the control hardware uh, that allows that force to be used. And then we also help uh, those that platform it be, be integrated into our client engines. Now, the IntelliGen platform that we uh, we sent to Marla Powertrain includes what we call a reference internal combustion system. This is a, uh, a sort of a an in-house internal combustion system, which isn't there for an end product solution, which is just there to help clients uh, understand the performance of our platform. And to put that platform through its paces, we chose renewable bioethanol because it's fairly, you know, it has some challenges when it comes to cold start, but it's also a really good, clean, renewable fuel uh, as part of the future mix. So rather than just, you know, uh, publishing a new story about, hey, we have some electrical machines, we wanted to make it real by showing what it means for uh, for cold start 
with renewable fuels being one challenge that we know has to be solved. So we set ourselves the goal of um, showing that we can reproduce the results that others have achieved, you know, using this wet bioethanol, 90% ethanol, 10% water. We run it with a constant compression ratio where everything's warm, everything's fine, just like we have a crankshaft. So there's a big tick in the box. Our, our software and our platform, it does the same job as a crankshaft. It's not there. That's a great result. Second thing that we showed is we wanted to replicate the problems that others have if you then make everything cold. So we loop, we drop the wall temperatures, not by a huge amount. We drop the combustion chamber system wall temperatures to about 20 degrees uh, Celsius. So I mean, essentially, you know, no longer preheated, but about room temperature. And because of the uh, the, the high heat of vaporization of ethanol the fuel injectors are spraying this stuff in and it's like breathing on glass you know it's uh, the fuel immediately condenses on the on the walls and there's almost no fuel in the mix to to drive combustion and unsurprisingly uh, we had nearly 100 percent misfire i was expecting to get some misfiring but it was great to see just how pronounced this issue is so same compression ratio about you know 14 15 to 1 just no combustion whatsoever. We even dialed the, the uh, ignition back a bit to make it uh, uh, to make it give it a chance. No combustion whatsoever. Now the next thing we did was to run the same test, but now for the first uh, for the first part of the test, we used our software controlled variable compression ratio to deliver a an increased compression ratio just for the first bit. And lo and behold, combustion is fine. Right. So in the same engine, no crankshaft, we can take a fuel that runs well warm and it runs well cold. With a crankshaft, you cannot do that. Uh, and that for us was a really good demonstration of the value of the platform that we provide. Now, as I say, we're not engine developers. We're not gonna go out and say, hey, here's a Liberty and engine, who wants to buy it? And there are companies in North America who are, who are doing that, but it's a really expensive uh, development journey. And it's also not something that um, for us is, is compatible with um, our model. We want to help our customers make their own engines. So we want to be a you know platform provider. We want to be a tools provider. Mm -hmm. But it's you know it's not as if you look in uh, you know under the bonnet of your car and say I, I have a Bosch car. No, it, it's got a Bosch fuel injector in it. It's got some right. Bosch components in it. But it's it's manufactured by one company and the car might be manufactured by another company and and that's as it should be. We're trying to help. We're trying to make just put this technology into as many hands as possible because we think it could be really impactful. Mm -hmm. So will you work together with an engine manufacturer or an OEM to help integrate that your technology or how would that relationship work? Yeah, absolutely. So, so you can imagine a, a value chain in future where, um, you know, we uh, buy equipment and components to make our linear electrical machines and we supply those linear electrical machines and the controls to an engine maker and the engine maker might then sell that and integrate that into a, a vehicle manufacturer's powertrain. In some cases, the vehicle manufacturer and the engine manufacturer are integrated and that's also mm -hmm. fine. Um, uh, so, and in some cases, our, our customers might say, well, we'd actually like to make the linear electrical machines as well. Can we license the technology? And of course, that's fine too. What we're aiming to do is to uh, develop and mature the platform technology and then just get it into as many programs as we can, as I say, because we think it's going to be really impactful and the sooner the better. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, well, I think those are all the questions I had for now. I don't know if you had anything else you uh, think are you wanted to add or think our audience should know about uh, your guys' technology or the work you're doing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, we're, we're developing a, uh, a more advanced version of the engine, which mm -hmm. went on to the, the uh, test bench uh, with Marla Powertrain. 
Um, if we're successful, that next generation engine will be on the test cell with Mylar powertrain and probably will be able to disclose the engine maker that we are working with as a, as a lead client uh, towards the end of this year. Um, and if, if that program is successful, we could easily see vehicle demonstration trials uh, sometime in 2022. I think it'd be great if we, you know, through the, the media work we're doing at the moment, we're, we're trying to gauge how much interest there is both from on-highway vehicle manufacturers and engine manufacturers, and also from uh, from off-highway vehicle manufacturers. Um, we've, we've got quite a lot of traction uh, just because of the people we've talked to so far. Uh, you know, for, for example, with um, companies, uh, it, you know, making trucks and, uh, mm. and in construction applications like JCB. Uh, we haven't yet spoken to many of the agricultural uh, equipment makers, um, uh, you know, companies like John Deere, who are really active and innovative mm. in terms of their plans for electrification and fossil free. And so the more of those we can reach uh, with this message that here is a means that you can make better engines for renewable fuels, and we can help you bring that development timeline forwards, de-risk it and get product into the marketplace and, and really show what can be done. Uh, that, you know, that, that's, that's even better. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today and um, explain the technology more and the work you guys are doing. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of OEM Industry Update. Thank you again to Sam for providing his insights into the technology Libertine is developing and how it could benefit heavy-duty engines. And be sure to tune in each week for another episode to stay up-to-date on our ever-changing industry.